Ladies and gentlemen, do welcome to the next episode of my safe bed show. And it gives me great pleasure. And it's a privilege to have a friend here, a very good friend of mine here today, Mr. Dallas Baker, who happens to be the head of international operations at Betmakers. Welcome to the show, Dallas. Great to have you. The privilege is all mine, Martin. Thank you very much for having me. That's very kind. We happen to be, because for the record, today is the 24th of July, so we happen to be recording right after the conclusion of the Ashes series. We will come on to that. Dallas just used some salacious words to describe the conclusion, but I suppose I should congratulate you. Good result for Australia. But anyway, before we go there, you were an Aussie radio personality once. You started your on-air career back in 94 on the Sydney-based radio 2KY. So what, that's the place to start, attracted you to that career in the first place, or was it all just pure coincidence? It's all horse racing, Martin. Uh, 2KY is the um, is part of the network of stations in Australia, which are the uh, pure racing stations. So uh, you, every capital city uh, still does have that as their um, as their racing source on radio. And from as young as I can remember, all I wanted to do was work in horse racing. I actually did a little bit of work experience at 2KY when I was um, you know, doing the work experience program, and you do it in year 10, year 11, whatever year you do that. And made good connections there and, um, you know, was just looking for a start in racing and uh, that opportunity opened up basically straight out of school. I wasn't too keen on going to university. I wanted to go to the University of Life and get right into racing. I'd had enough of the uh, the studying thing when it got to the end of the, the, the final exam on after the HSC was the last time I was doing any of that. So I wanted to get into the big wide world and uh, 2KY provided the great opportunity to do that. And uh also created, well, so there was always the love of horse racing there, created the love of the media as well too. So it was a, it was a really great start into um, in what has become pretty much a lifelong racing career. Yeah, and you're well known, if not renowned, for your love of racing, and that will be another topic that we will pick up on. And clearly Dallas joins the ranks of those who we've already had on the show who are become very successful through self-education but perhaps <clears throat> the next one will be a bit philosophical because you've been a radio personality mm -hmm. so would it be fair to say that with social media not yet having seen the light of day back in the day radio stations were more popular than they might be today or am i wrong and if i may mimic the great Late Freddie Mercury, all be here. It's Radio Gaga. What's your take on that? Well, we could go another song too. You're saying that uh, video didn't just kill the radio star, social media killed the radio star as well, too. Everybody get more into disco type stuff, Martin. But um, look, I mean, one thing I will say is I think that anyone who has worked in radio uh, across the many, many spectrums of media. And anyone who has had a good stint in radio, I would say almost to a person would say that they love radio as the medium themselves. It doesn't mean that it's going to be in existence forever because there's people like me, old radio dinosaurs and all of that, that, uh, that love it. But it's just such a great medium that the fact that you can have that, and especially when it's on a talkback basis, you get that instant um, interaction with your audience. You don't have time to sit and pre-produce things and work out what you're going to say. You have to act on your feet. 
and all that immediacy is really is I think is is the funnest way to present media because you're there and you have to react to it. Um, obviously, radio isn't the isn't the force as it was. And I mean, you say, I mean, you're only talking what thirty years ago that um, probably not even that you know the internet wasn't even a factor in our lives. And um, you know, back to the days where you got your news from getting your the local main papers when you woke up in the morning and read through them, and you you might have three network TV channels, and uh, then the only other way to get you know, debate during the day really was through radio. So obviously his life has evolved and now that the instant gratification comes from social media, it is a changing world. But, you know, as we said, uh, video was going to kill the radio star, but sort of did it, but didn't. It made it harder for the radio. Uh, social media has made it harder for it, but it's still there and it's still in existence and plays its role. So, um, yeah, not to the extent as it was, but it's sort of a bit of a shake because I think it's a, it, it is, a, as I said, it's a fantastic medium for people to communicate and, to, and for the audience to be able to communicate back and be part of that discussion on the uh, that news discussion on the day, which was the only way to be able to do it. Now that's obviously evolved into four hundred zillion different platforms. That um, one of them has now changed their name. <laughs> Absolutely, we if anything, we probably have way too many social media platforms. It's, it's difficult to recall. Older names, so we won't be promoting them on on this show. And it was on the pragmatic side of things. We both dressed up today, but I've done quite a few radio shows, including a few ESPN radios here in the States. You're yet to invite me to any in Australia. Hopefully one day you will, and I'll pluck up the courage to go with this accent. But then, as I started saying, from the practical perspective, you can just turn up. You don't even need to dress up. All you need to bring is yourself and, and your voice. In the same vein, before we move on to talking about horse racing, you know, you launched your radio career with 2KY, then you moved on to a few other shows that indeed focused on sport and racing. And you happen to have launched your own show, or a few shows actually. One of them is still going strong 20 yeah. years later. So what is it like to get a show off the ground? It's bound to be tough. Well, 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 that one you talk about in particular, Martin, was very tough because I ended up bankrupt out of it. So it seems like it was a great, a great idea for a show that's gone twenty years, but the business model may have sucked. Um, so, um, but yeah, it, it is difficult, and especially what you were saying about radio and how it was, how it was being usurped by social. I think when we started that, which is roughly twenty years, was really when advertising agencies and everything else were starting to morph away from traditional and then moving into the more social thing. Uh, the social spend and, you know, maybe a lot of it comes down to being able to get the great metrics you can from social, you know, exactly what your campaigns are doing and what results you're getting. Whereas radio is a bit ambiguous, you know, you say, oh, well, our sales improved, but what do you put it down to? Oh, hopefully our radio campaign, but it could be one of 10 different factors. So that was, that was probably what killed that model at the time. So yeah, to get something like that up at the timing, the timing was perfectly wrong. From a business point of view, but obviously those that took over the show have been able, able to uh, eat, eat something out of it and uh, go from there. But yeah, it's difficult. I mean, you've got so many different. Um, um, when you get into it and get involved in trying to build something like that, you you see what's in front of you. But there's so many different things that are below the surface that you have to deal with as you as you come up, and everything becomes a hurdle or an imp- impediment to um, making that business successful. Uh, unfortunately, 20 years ago, we weren't over, over, able to overcome the hurdles, but you know, that's what you learn from, um, learn from business and like having a failed business, you learn a lot from it. 
But um, yeah, there's there's always challenges, and the, I think the greatest challenge with anything like that is that it's very hard to take your eyes off it. So you've got to you've got to be a million percent committed to it, and you've got to say, well, this is my life. And um, if you if you want to have something else happen outside of your life when you're doing something like that, well, good luck because for every half a second you take your your eye off the ball, something will happen that needs that goes wrong and that you need to deal with. So the the when you do do something like that, it needs to be you need to be able to have that life life commitment to it. And um, it's yeah, it's like uh, like looking after a very very small child. It uh, you can't take your eyes off it. And the passion that's clearly permeating that chat. And ladies and gentlemen, this is standard Dallas Baker for you. That's why he's such a great <laughs> guest on this show. And as you said, you know, those who took that business over, it would sound that they owe you a great deal, potentially both economically and morally. But let's <laughs> talk about racing, horse racing. That is, by your own admission, you've been involved with it pretty much your whole life. So what was the origin of your life of your love rather for the racing sport i i, I think i was the uh, the traditional child that uh that was taken to the races by your parents especially my father and that was sort of the tradition that we we spent i think for most people my age or a little bit older um the, that was what you did you went to the races with you with your parents if they if they were involved in it my dad was very very passionate about racing Uh, my godfather was a leading horse trainer in Australia, uh, Theo Green. Um, and, you know, so I suppose there was that romanticism of, you know, that was what I what I did with my dad, went to the races and my sister. Um, we went there and, you know, just from an early age, I think when racing grabs you, it grabs you. And um, if you get exposed to whatever part of racing that does grab you, that that's often there for you for life. In most cases, it is there with you for life. And... For whatever reason, in those formative years, it grabbed me very early. And all, as I said at the start, all I ever wanted to do was work in horse racing. Um, I just love the industry, Martin. I just love everything. The the thrill, there's not much better thrill of backing a winner, first and foremost. I mean, that's what it's about. It's, a, it's about the excitement that racing brings. But then having the, um, the privilege, using that word again, to have worked in the industry and having, you know, like, well, I think where racing really became prevalent for me was that there was the period of while doing that sports show so that was about like three or four year period where I wasn't working in racing I was dealing with general sports people and I really I think that really really cemented what a great industry racing is and the people around it and I think because it's such a hard and tough game I mean you can win the Melbourne Cup and then 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 the, the next day you've got to you're, you're at the track preparing horses at four o'clock in the morning probably pretty much hungover, probably still going from the celebrations the night before. <laughs> But again, you can't take your eye off it. And then it's because it's such a great leveller. The, the amazing emotional um, response you get to winning a feature race can be cruel the next week with a, a, just as big a disaster around the corner, which is a little bit masochistic. But I think that's also, that's also half the attraction of it too. Racing levels people. It's very hard. I mean, We all have egos. Everybody who's good at it believes they're good at it and all of that. But it's tempered somewhat because disaster is just around the corner and everybody knows that in racing as well too. So it, it creates a great community and when racing, when that racing community is functioning together, I don't think there's any greater support network for people that get around everybody and as part of that community. Um, it's, 
it, it really is a it's, it's a tough world, but it's a great world to be involved with, and and those things just keep resonating throughout. I mean, there's the amount of times that you you wake up after a bad day and think, why the hell do I do this? But I think that's half of the attraction of it as well, too. Yeah, it's part of the frail, and I hope I can relate because where I'm from, it's a place called Pardubice, back home in the Czech Republic, that as you will know, hosts arguably the most. The Brits will disagree with me, but arguably the most difficult steeplechase race in the continent. So I've now given them something back. And I recall having taken my parents to a race many months ago by now, where our all time favorite horse was going for a third consecutive victory in the big race. And he won. And I'll never forget that. My dad's standing there, myself, we're both in tears. And I'm thinking, well, yeah. I might have given him. At least something back for everything he's done for me. Yeah. Uh, but that's the point. The stories that racing can become and the fact also too that racing really is about the punter. It's about the consumer. And the consumer can be actively involved in it because it really is about the betting on racing, which is the, the core to it. And the star of the show is the is the customer. So by having that, you can share in that experience and you know whether you've backed the Melbourne Cup winner or own the Melbourne Cup winner, it still becomes part of that experience that you can, yeah, latch onto and enjoy and become 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 part of that immense emotion that goes around with it all. And this is a perfect segue into the next topic, which indeed relates to sports betting. It's as though you'd had seen the questions before the recording. <laughs> so, and you made the point yourself. I do dare say that betting is an inherent part of the racing sport but also the other way around. So these days, what's the relationship between the two industries, be it down under in Australia or here in the States, or I suspect you may be in Jamaica today? Give us a bit of a flavor, please. Well, I suppose it's all, all three are different. Well, and I suppose uh, Jamaica's probably closer to the US, but getting uh, always closer to the bracket into the US. But in Australia, sport and racing, you just exist on sports books, whatever, just side by side. Uh, you got your football bets, you got your racing bets, and people are just using it off the same side, and people gravitate towards it to and from. Racing still in the in Australia is still the biggest bet on sport. I think it equates for, depending on what numbers you look at, around fifty percent still of the total sports handle. Um, and it's yeah, it coexists in a perfect. Symbiotic manner, one benefits the other, the other benefits the other. People bet on racing, bet on sports, people bet on sports, bet on racing. Perfect model. That's what we're trying to bring into the US to get uh, to get racing on the sports books, um, get to get fixed odds betting on 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 as many sport different sports books, including the great brands of Intain, um, and uh, get and see racing actually take it to the modern uh, sports wagering punter or the modern punter, whatever way you want to define it. And be exposed and expose racing to the millions and millions, tens of millions of people who have got sports betting accounts in the US. So, and hopefully then build on that beautiful relationship that coexists that sports people bet on racing, racing people bet on sports. That helps sports betting, that's helps, and that helps grow racing. And uh, with the right modeling, that can be the great benefit to a racing industry in the US that does need a few uh, different revenue sources. It starts feeling as though legalized sports betting had been in the States forever. But yeah. the sad naked truth is that it had not up until 2018. So where would you stand on all this? 
Well, it has it's come so fast, hasn't it, really, from um, from a zero start, well, zero start we've, with our factoring in the illegal grey market. Um, I mean, it, it really has, as you said. It, it feels like if you, if you just got supplanted in the US and you weren't part of that whole process, you would think that this has been an industry that's been around for 30, 40, 50 years for, for lifetimes. It really has matured very quickly. Um, and, you know, and as I, I think as we see now is, Every next state comes on, the rollout is a lot more efficient, a lot quicker. Um, and it seems like it's you know running on rails and obviously uh, the, the massive handle that we see now on uh, sports betting uh, is, speaks for itself. Um, you know, there's still, there's still probably plenty of places that can evolve. And I would think when you're talking about, uh, to go back to my passion, as you know, Martin, when you're talking about the third or fourth biggest sport, which probably racing should evolve to in the U.S., that's the one big. Uh, that's the one big slot that still needs to be added into the into the mix. And I think once you see that, that's that's the uh, that's the evolution of the whole market. But uh, you know, as I said, I think racing anywhere in the world will normally sit in the top three or four sports just by the nature of it. And uh, that completes the market, Martin. So that's uh, that's our job to get it there. <laughs> Let's talk bet makers. So actually, when you joined Batmakers, and I, I didn't know that until you kindly shared your resume with me, you know, you joined a company called Top Better that ultimately yeah. evolved into Batmakers. So what is your role there and how has the business been going in the jurisdictions we've, we've just talked about, i.e. the States and Jamaica? Yeah, well, I think, I think that's, that, that name change is pretty cool because when we first started up, we were a retail bookmaker, also trying to do the business-to-business thing. We really focus on the behind-the-scenes business, powering a stack of sports books, getting all the data out there. There's not really, there's not too many bookmakers around the world that are betting on racing that, in some way, aren't don't have some either up from total from total reliance to minor minor details from betmakers stuff going into it. So, um, you know, we've evolved that in into. Um, into that uh, that point, but um, back to what you were saying about uh, so that that evolution about that was changing the company from being a retail bookmaker to just really purely focusing on behind the scenes. So that's why that name change came about. On sold the retail part of the business. How many years it was ago? So we've really tried to evolve in creating that, um, creating all the all the tools possible for bookmakers around the world. Um, to as manage a race book as automatedly as you possibly can. Now, I don't think there's any system in the world that can fully automate a race book. It still needs a little. It still needs a bit of human polish. Hence, why managing racing has a little bit more of an element to it than sport. I mean, essentially, in sport, you've got A versus B, whereas racing, you've got you know ten horses taking each other on. So just and with a lot more contests going on from a lot more venues around the world. So, I mean, it, just in that. Just in that uh, metric itself, it obviously shows that there's more complexities to it. So basically developing developing that and developing all the systems to make it as easy for bookmakers to bet on, which means that bookmakers can bet on more content and which means that then the, the end result of the racing industry means more revenues back because the mar- that it opens up the marketplace for it. So by having great technology, um, it does provide greater opportunities for the industry. And we've seen it in Australia where... Obviously, fixed odds betting has been the catalyst, but all the innovation and everything that comes with it, it's, it's fixed odds betting was deregulated in Australia about 2010-ish, 2009, something like that. And in that time, we've seen prize money, everything double. But it's, it's not just those pure metrics. It's all the things that, like from a bookmaking point of view, that 
every week another you know there's a different technology come out or there's a diff- there's a better way to do things and that has evolved the marketplace now to um being a bit nostalgic with the radio you go back to the days of when we first going to the racetrack where you'd get a cardboard ticket and you had a pencil of frantically writing down the bets and all of that i mean that's only 30 years ago and all but i mean from where that has evolved to now to what you can see with a sports betting platform which a lot of it was born from racing because the sports betting phenomenon pretty much has said it started with racing and developed into sports globally anyway, not in the US, but globally. And those technological advances get you to where you are now that you go onto every betting site and you're hit with this dynamic, you know, sleek, beautiful way of betting. And, uh, you know, I think that's that, that's an important part in the progression of racing and gen- sports betting in general, that, uh, that user experience, which has been able to improve Week on week, or if not day on day. Well, that's pretty impressive, if not mind-boggling. And do you mind spending a few minutes talking about any projects that you and all together with Batmakers may have launched to promote this particular course and support the horsemen and ultimately the beautiful sport itself? Well, I think the first point to that, Martin, is that social license has become probably a term... It's really only evolved in the last, what, decade or so. Um, there really didn't have to be a social license. I mean, like, you know, you know, let's just call, call it as it is. There wasn't really much of a social license. There didn't need to be a social license in racing. Obviously, uh, as we've evolved, uh, and I'm, just, I'm talking about more the animal side of things now, we'll talk about the, the more human side of it in a sec. Um, you know, as it's evolved, Aftercare for horse has been one of the biggest issues in racing, making sure that once a horse has done its job on the track, then it's properly treated afterwards. Um, that is, it really should have been, you know, the way that it was forever, but it wasn't. But the fact that it is, it is sort of something that has evolved now. But it, all of these things that happen come at a cost and a great cost as well too. So I th- as an industry, and I think one thing that it has, the industry led, led in a lot of ways by the Australian team. And, um, you know, basically, I think Peter Valandis was about, probably about five, 10 years ago from New South Wales CEO, brought in a rule that said no matter where the horse ended up, it wasn't just the next stage or the, the next owner or the next owner. If you own that horse, you're responsible for making sure that from, from the moment that horse gets into old age dying, that that still is your responsibility. So there's no, like, I can just sell it to somebody and then I can be sold to sold to somewhere who's going to mistreat the horse. I think those programs are, you know, very important. This is more from an industry point of view, but it comes back to it needs funding. And so for, for funding in the industry, you need the right model to be able to fund it, and that is having a very good betting model to be able to fund it and then get the returns back to the industry, not just for prize money and things like that, but for definitely for horse aftercare as a, a primary concern and also for the safety, uh, improving safety procedures as well. It's a dangerous sport. We know that, but, uh, you know, you could always improve and improve and improve and make that. But from the betting point of view, um, you know, I think, I think the, you know, the, again, 20, 30 years ago, a good customer was somebody who lost regardless whether they were losing their house. And I think now, and especially, I mean, the work that you've done with your foundation through Entain of getting in front of it and bookmakers leading the charge, again, going back to 20, 30 years ago, could you imagine actually having a conversation where you say that a, a wagering organisation is leading the charge on problem gambling. It, it's just, 
It, it's, it's like saying the sky's the sky's not blue. I mean, it, it's just phenomenal to think that as an industry and as wagering people in the wagering space as we are, um, and especially from your organisation, has been able to lead the charge on that and and say, look, yeah, okay, we all like sitting there and seeing the profit tick over and turnover, but you know what? We shouldn't be taking that person's money, and that's a big decision to make at the time. But it's the right decision, and to be able to do that and to develop into where it is, it's. Um, I think it's a very, it's it's a feather in the cap to the wagering industry to do that, and also to then getting back to more of the integrity side of things. Whereas thirty years ago, it was always the bookmakers were pulling the rorts and all of that. Now it's the bookmakers who are the first to sort of see if there's anything going on, and using that technology to come back to powers that be and say this looks a little bit dodgy. And, you know, and then using that technology to improve it. So I think that's been a great shift in the whole, from the betting side of thing and looking after your customer, know your customer, all that sort of business, is that the bookmakers have taken the responsibility for it and leading and now leading the charge with it, which is, which I think is great. Well, first of all, thank you very much for your kind words. And I can't even... But the integrity, because the integrity has been gradually improving, I'd like to think, over a longer period of time. But on the RG side of things, I cannot necessarily fathom a conversation like that even six, seven, eight years ago. And fingers crossed that it will be gaining even more prominence. I mean, this particular debate, we are now hitting the home straight. So I would be remiss before I give Dallas 60 seconds to wrap it up with his radio hat and personality on if I give him 60 seconds to do that I would be remiss in my duties if I didn't ask first of all about the ashes my take is that Australia clearly had much better rain whisperers than England <laughs> yeah anticlimactic isn't it I mean would it be fair to say Martin that if this had have gone the way that it, the, the game went um, that we'd be counting down to probably the most anticipated test match of all time. That's you right. You know, like, so that was taken away. And I think the irony of it was it took three and three-quarter test matches for a team to dominate in the whole thing. And I don't think I've ever seen a series like that, that it was just ebb and flow, no one dominated. And then at the point that somebody did, Rain comes down and says, no, you won't be doing that. No, so I think, like, I mean, I, you, the the eating some lover shane to hold it together to get to the next day was obviously a very important thing but i, I think it's a flat it's a flat way and the series deserved a lot a flat way to win that is such a great series and the series deserved better and it would have been just an absolute cracking test match but it's not that's all part of the vagaries of cricket so play on i suppose you know that's uh that's the way it is but uh, yeah i'd look you know even as an australian i i I, I I feel flat with that. But anyway, that's 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 cricket. Yeah, absolutely. It's a shame. Perhaps we might need to relocate England to a place with more stable mm. weather. Not sure how we would do that. Talking about the weather, I know for fact, and I'm sure some of the audience will know that as well, that lately you've been spending a lot of time in rather exotic destinations, including... <laughs> likes of Jamaica, the Bahamas, perhaps you other places yeah. I may not even know about. And as we're filming this in the summer, would you have any recommendations as to where folks could go for vacation? Well, Jamaica is, uh, we've been there, we launched Fixed Odds down here uh, in conjunction with uh, Supreme Ventures, who's the promoter of racing, owner of the racetrack uh, late last year. 
and have been uh, on track and it's going great. I mean, Jamaican racing is just uh, is just phenomenal. It's just people go to the races, Jamaica, funnily enough, to go to the races, whereas I think that's one of the things that we've lost in racing is that we promote people to come to the races for emu racing, wiener dog racing, whatever whatever else is. And the core, the core promotion of racing, which is coming out and enjoying the races, excuse me, in a lot of ways has been forgotten. But Jamaica, everyone at the races is there to go to the races. They're passionate. They cheer like no, nothing else. And they love racing. And hence why, you know, putting a racing product out in Jamaica it can, you, can be quite successful because you've got the, the passion of the industry. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Jamaica's, a, Jamaica's a, a wonderful place. I'm in Kingston at the moment. It's not that Kingston wouldn't be accused of being the picture postcard, Ochus Rios and Montego Bay, but uh, no, some of the resorts along that, you know, you just pick a resort. Most of them are great along the uh, along the coastline between Montego Bay and Ochi and then even around to the grill and all of that. But uh, there's some wonderful places in Jamaica and the people are, people down here are wonderful. It's a, it's a different culture, but it's a wonderful culture. It's all welcoming and yet. You normally, when you're talking to people, you're having a smile because uh, it's got a great sense of humour. And uh, yeah, it's it's a, you know it's a tough country. It's uh, you know what do they refer to it as the the wealthiest third world country in the world. But you know so there's it's it's, it's tough and it's tough for people to survive. But they do it with a smile, and um, it's uh, it's 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 a, it really is a fantastic country. We should all go there. We might not get to see Dallas on the beach because he delivered that Batmaker speech yeah. perfectly. It was in tune and in tone. And here's Hartley on, vac on vacation, which is a shame. But anyway, I shall digress once again. And now is your time to shine even more and cement your place in uh, the Racing Hall of Fame. So your 60 <laughs> seconds to wrap this up. I think actually coming out, coming off the Haskell weekend to Monmouth, which is which is which was a really great weekend, is just that I think there's a huge opportunity for the U.S. racing industry there sitting there. I think that no one in the wagering industry will argue that uh, the horse horse racing will sit in a very high position in uh, in sports in sports books, and it's up to the racing industry to be there to maximise it and to make sure that they get the proper returns from it. There is a huge revenue source there for people for racing, and there's also a huge um, another bet type, which is going to provide great interest and entertainment to all the people that are betting on sports betting platforms now. It's just the the time is now, the time is ready, and racing can really start turning around and going from meandering around where it, on turnover levels that should be higher to to rapid growth, and it just needs the whole industry to come together, to embrace it, to understand the huge opportunity that exists and hopefully take it and work together with uh, wagering operators to grow the product because, as I said, the opportunity is there. And in five, 10 years down the track, if it's taken, I'm pretty sure everyone's going to be saying, that wasn't a bad idea. Amen. Fingers crossed. Thank you very much for coming on to the show, Dallas. Ladies and gentlemen, this was the one and only... And also a friend of mine, Mr. Dallas Baker. My name is Martin Lechka, and this was the latest episode of my Safe Bet Show. I shall see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>